So um, we're going to continue this uh, sermon series called Looking Back to Look Forward. And uh, I read an article recently in Christianity Today that was very, very interesting that I think fits in very well with our, our sermon series, but also I think um, really helps um, bring to life our, our uh, passage of Scripture today. So I'm going to read this because trying to paraphrase it, I'm not going to do very well. But it's, uh, like I said, from Christianity Today, and the article was written by two guys, one named David Dangerfield, another one named Ramon Jackson. Um, but listen to uh, what he talks about in this article. He says, at first glance, William Turpin and his business partner, Thomas Wadsworth, appeared to be like any other prestigious, powerful white men in the 18th century in South Carolina. They were successful Charleston merchants, had business interests across the state, got involved in politics, and enslaved numerous human beings. Nothing about them seemed out of the ordinary, but quietly, these two men changed their minds about slavery. They became committed abolitionists and worked to free dozens of enslaved people across South Carolina. When most wealthy white Carolinians were, incre were increasingly committed to slavery, defending it even as a Christian institution, these two men were compelled by their convictions to break the shackles that they had placed on dozens of men and women. And in an era when the Bible was edited in a way that enslaved people would not get the idea that God cared about them or about their freedom, Turpin left a secret record of emancipation in a copy of his personal Bible, which is now in the South Carolina State Museum. So perhaps it's not surprising this story of faith and freedom is not really well known. The two men were, after all, not trying to attract attention to themselves. And when I mention their names, I don't, I don't guess any of you went, oh yeah, I've heard of those guys, but just listen as I continue. Wadsworth served the South Carolina House of Representatives from 1791 to 1797. He represented Lawrence District near Greenville, and Turpin was the state senator representing the parish that com comprised the city of Charleston in 1809. The two men were business partners, and their business interests led them to acquire land across South Carolina's up county at what turned out to be at just the right time for financial success. In the 1780s, they received these large land grants for thousands of acres in both the 96 and Orangeburg districts. And when the cotton gin was invented a few years later, short staple cotton, which grew very well in South Carolina's upcountry, became a very profitable commodity. And cotton was cultivated with enslaved labor, so the cotton boom also drove up the power of enslaved people. So this, so far, is fairly a typical story. Politically connected and commercially savvy white men making money off a change in the market and ongoing explo exploitation of slave labor. But something happened to these men. Beneath the surface, away from their public, political, and business um, dealings, these men were developing very different ideas in their minds and in their hearts. Wadsworth called it notions of humanity. 
The first evidence of something different about these men came in 1799 when Wadsworth died of malaria. And in his will, he freed nearly two dozen of his slaves. Individual emancipations, or what would be called manumissions, were not uncommon at the time. These were received as uh, uh, seen as final benevolent acts, which in no way threatened the regime of slavery or prefigured any kind of general emancipation. In South Carolina, however, the number of people that Wadsworth freed at once was unheard of. In that historical moment, it appeared like the common culture practice of deathbed generosity and more like an act of liberation. The former state legislator also left each family enough property so that they could support themselves in freedom. He left them 50 acres, livestock, and equipment. Did you all hear that? So he not only freed these slaves, but he gave them 50 acres and livestock and equipment to work that. Now, this is pre-Civil War. This is amazing as I'm reading this, and I'll, I'll keep going on. So his business partner, Turpin, left the South in 1824, and he also started to speak out against slavery. Speaking from experience, he began to publicly condemn the peculiar institution that become a way of life in the United States and earned many people a lot of money, including himself and his business partner. He actually wrote former President Thomas Jefferson, urging him to take up the cause of abolition. It was not enough, Turbin told Jefferson, to advocate for freedom on paper. It was required by God himself to set the captives free. So Turpin wrote James Madison, too, hoping that the founding father who played such a pivotal role in drafting their Bill of Rights, would see the importance of ending slavery. I have lived more than a half a hundred years in a slave state, he wrote Madison in one letter. I have owned plantations and slaves, and am well acquainted with the treatment and disposition of slaves and of all the laws of the southern states. I was so much convinced of the evil of slavery, we gave 50 their freedom. And Turpin may have had other motivations besides his faith, um, for converting to the cause of abolitionism, but his Christianity clearly helped compel his personal obedience to what he eventually saw as a righteous cause and also pushed him to acts of contrition. I could not rest, he wrote, until I had paid them wages for the time we held them as slaves. So when he died in 1835, he left behind an estate plan that remembered all those 50 families and that they had already freed and given them land and given them equipment and given them livestock, but he also bequeathed them with $8,000 apiece, not as a gift according to his will, but proper remuneration for their time as slaves to both myself and Mr. Wadsworth. So this past summer, the South Carolina State Museum acquired Mr. Turpin's personal Bible, and within its pages lies the clearest testament to ties between his faith and his conversion to the cause of abolitionism. In the front page of the large Bible published in 1815, and a lot of us have these in our Bibles or family Bibles, we'll put in the front of those births and deaths and marriages and things at least people did for, for many, many years. But instead, in his Bible in that front page, Turpin recorded by hand all the names and the details of all those he and Wadsworth had freed. The list gives careful attention to each, treating them with respect. One was like this. Will, age 47 years old, a first-rate man set free on the 14th of April, 1814. The next read, Lund, 
age 35, a first-rate carpenter set free on the 12th of May, 1820. On the next line is Jenny, 25, sister to Lund, followed by more who were set free that day. Leah, Tony, Judah, Abram, Boston, Caesar, Hector, another Leah, and her three sons. Lists, of course, were common tools for enslavers. They used ledgers like these and the latest techniques of bookkeeping to track the value of the humans they owned and the profits their suffering created. In contrast, Turpin's ledger recognized their freedom and their eternal worth as children of God. Now, I was amazed as I'm reading this. Again, this is before the Civil War, but these two guys recognized something as they were looking back that made them huge profits was not really something good in the way they treated valuable human beings, children of God, as slaves. And they recognized, and they couldn't change the fact that they did that, but they could, moving forward, do something very different, and they did. And you think about, this was creating what was going to eventually come in our country that obviously needed to be done. So as we look at this series, Looking Back to Move Forward, I think this is an appropriate illustration. And the text I'm going to share this morning is probably familiar to many of you. Um, If not, uh, that's okay, but I I just love this story personally. But Jesus encounters this man as he's walking through uh, Jericho one day, which is uh, a town that's on the way to Jerusalem. And Jesus' connection with this man brought about a marked change in this man's life and the way he thought and the way he lived going forward. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and, um, and, and see what uh, Dr. Luke says in his account of Jesus. So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. So, in Luke's account, we see that Jesus, and, and we can tell that chapter 19 is pretty far into Luke's gospel account of Jesus' life. And from this part of Luke's gospel, we are aware that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the last time before he goes to the cross. I mean, this is the primary mission of why Jesus came into the world, to go to the cross, to die for you, to die for all of humanity and their sins. And Jesus knows this. And Jesus seemingly obviously has this mission running through his mind. I'm on my way to die for the sins of the world. And it's not going to be a quick death. It's going to be an excruciating death. But Jesus, going through Jericho, knowing that is in his mind, we understand that in verse 10, he understands that I'm here to seek and save what was lost. And ultimately, that's going to be done through his death on the cross. But he has time 
to stop in, Jer- in, in Jericho and speak to this Zacchaeus. Now, a lot of y'all remember that growing up with that little song, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, right? Okay, <laughs> I'm not going to sing the whole thing. I know my son's going, Dad, please, no, please don't do that. Um, but anyway, but we, we grew up hearing that song, so you may know that. But author and writer Joel Ryan shares a little bit about what these tax collectors, how they were looked at in culture, and it wasn't very highly at all. As their title suggests, first century tax collectors, and sometimes in some of your uh, uh, Bibles it'll say publicans, they were responsible obviously for collecting taxes on property and income, but also anybody that came in and out of a town had to pay these taxes on imports and exports as they traveled through whatever road it was in the region. And however, unlike our um, contemporary IRS agents, the publicans described in the Gospels had been enlisted by the Romans to collect taxes on behalf of this mighty Roman empire that ruled the world in that first century. The tax collectors of Jesus' day were, in fact, Jews who were taking money from their fellow Jews as a, that's what they did for a living from this occupying enemy called Rome. And it comes as no surprise that when, mis, when most Jews had little to no love for the Roman occupation that was in their country and the thought of funding their own oppression through taxation and the excessive regulation was very distasteful to them as well. And for this reason, tax collectors were seen as traitors to their nation and treated as such. You can see that. You know they've taken over our land. We don't have hardly any rights, and you're working for them. And they tax us on everything, and you're working for them. And we can see the way you dress, the way your house looks, that you're making a lot of money off of us. And so it's obvious they were hated in the process because they were lining their pockets. According to John MacArthur, he says, the tax collectors often strong-arm money out of people because they had the Romans behind them with the use of thugs, and they were despicable, vile, unprincipled scoundrels, he calls them. And Zacchaeus, as we read in our passage today, he wasn't only a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector in this town of Jericho, which a lot of people went through. So not only is he taking taxes, he's in charge of managing all those who do, and he's making a lot of money as a result. And Zacchaeus even confessed, as you read to Jesus upon his conversion, that he would give back to everyone who he had defrauded, seemingly confirming that, yes, I've been an extortionist. Now, you notice in that gospel account, he says, if I have cheated anyone, he's still a little bit in denial, isn't he? Because he had cheated people for sure. And as a Jew being a tax collector through personally but though it was personally profitable, often also made the individual a social outcast. Furthermore, because of their reputation, tax collectors would have been forbidden to enter into the synagogue, being essentially cut off from the Jewish community and places of worship. And they knew this, but for them it was worth it to be rich, to have those material possessions. So social and religious outcasts, the tax collectors were the most despised individuals in Israel, men deemed lower than the Herodians, lower than the Roman soldiers, and ones regarded on the same level as harlots and prostitutes. And we read about some of this in the Gospels. Tax collectors had to keep their distance from any group because they were so hated. The Jewish Talmud, which is uh, something that was written as laws about the laws of Moses' laws, they were added on later, 
taught that it was righteous and okay to lie and deceive a tax collector because it was what a professional extortioner deserved. Do you see that? In their law, it was okay. And everyone's like, yeah, that'd be great. (laughs) But it's not okay. And the fact that Jesus would interact and even dine with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners would have been considered socially unacceptable and even shameful. And on more than one occasion, we hear the Pharisees going, I can't believe... Jesus, that you hang out with these people. Why would you hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners? How dare you do that? And as we can clearly see, Zacchaeus was clearly despised among his own people. So Luke tells us Zacchaeus is wealthy, but that wealth has certainly not brought him acceptance. It has not brought him love from his fellow people. And that's something that Zacchaeus desperately needs, as all of us do, don't we? We all need love. We all need acceptance, especially within our own community. And we can act like we're fine. That doesn't bother me. I don't care if you like me. I don't care. I don't care. But down deep inside, it gets old when every time you walk down the street, everybody walks away from you or talks bad about you. And you know that. And it seems obvious that Zacchaeus has heard about Jesus and was curious. So Luke tells us he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And I'm sure when they saw him coming and they saw he was trying to see, they're like, ain't no way you are going to see Jesus. I'm boxing you out, buddy. There is no way. You're a jerk. We hate you. You're not seeing Jesus. And that was going on. So he ran ahead and climbed this sycamore fig tree to see him since he knew Jesus was coming. Now, it was not considered dignified in this culture for a grown man to run. You don't do that. You have to pull up your skirt, not a skirt, but your robe, your toga, whatever it was, and you had to run, and it was undignified for a grown man. When we see a grown, older man running, we're kind of going, why is that guy running? And I mean, if he's jogging or something, that's one thing, but just like if he's running in a parking lot in street clothes, it's kind of like, what is that guy doing? There must be an emergency or something. So this was kind of like it was. And it was also not dignified for a grown man to climb a tree. That's what kids do. They run, they climb trees, but not dignified, especially a chief tax collector of the region, to do something like this. Children run and climb trees, but not self-respecting adults. Um, We've got some pictures I want to show you. This summer, when I was in New Guinea in Martha Wade's village there, um, I took two pictures. This is one of them because it reminded me of Zacchaeus. I was like, these kids are in the trees. They were trying to see what was going on, and that's one of them. And then the next one is, um, right where we were staying, I woke up one morning, and I'm looking over the deck, and I'm like, there's kids in the trees. (laughs) What do they do? And they're just smiling, and I waved at them, and they waved back. But they just wanted to see what was going on, and it was a much better view. And And the way they got up in those trees so quickly, I was like, if I tried that, it would be a disaster. It would be embarrassing. But in both of those acts of running and climbing, Zacchaeus shows that he's in the process of searching for something. And he's not beyond humiliating himself or being ridiculed. I don't care if people make fun of me. I know I'm not a grown man, but you know what? I've been humiliated. I know people don't like me. I don't care. I want to see this Jesus guy. And how did he get to this place of searching for something more than this financial wealth and material wealth that he had? Did he look back and finally see the people he was cheating for so long? actually had worth and value, and he was funding his own pockets by looking at them as dollar signs? 
Did he look back and recognize his people he had been cheating and their families that he had been cheating were trying to make a living just like him but could get nowhere? They had hopes. They had dreams. They had visions for their families and, and where they wanted to go. But as long as these incredible taxes keep happening, every time I turn around, we're never going to get anywhere. And it's your fault, Zacchaeus. Did it ever occur to him that was what was happening? Was there some kind of encounter one day when maybe somebody was pleading with him to please cut me a, some slack, give me a few more days, and maybe it finally registered with him. These are humans. These are my people that I'm cheating, and look at what I've gotten as a result, and look at where they are. Maybe it finally hit him. Did the, did the wealth lose its bling? I don't know. And he wanted to see who Jesus was. Why? And I wondered... Matthew, who was one of Jesus' disciples, was a former tax collector. We know when Jesus called him, he left his tax collecting booth and went and followed Jesus. And I wonder, did he know Matthew? Did he talk to Matthew? I wonder if he tells us, the Gospels tells us that when Matthew was called, shortly after that, Jesus was at a party at Matthew's house celebrating with sinners and tax collectors in the the religious establishment was knowing of this and outside and going, I can't believe this is going on. And I'm wondering, was Zacchaeus there at that party? Did he meet Jesus for the first time at that party and start to understand a little bit about who Jesus was, but maybe after the party he went back to his old lifestyle again? We can only speculate as to why he sought Jesus, but we know that he did for some reason. And so as he's in that tree, he gets this clear vision. He's clearly, optically can see Jesus coming now. Oh, that's Jesus. And as Jesus walked closer to Zacchaeus in that tree, Zacchaeus was about to experience who Jesus was, not just what Jesus looked like. And consider also the sycamore tree. I didn't know this about that particular tree. It also produces these fig-like fruit. And the unripe fruit was inedible due to its very bitter. If it doesn't ripen, it's very, very bitter. And if it's left to ripen, it would also remain inedible due to the presence of insects were always getting inside of this fruit. You've probably seen this with some fruit trees. If you don't get them off at the right time, the insects get them and ruin them. So the solution was to pierce or wound the fruit. People who were in that business of, of harvesting these figs, they knew that the fruit of the sycamore was pierced for two reasons, to ripen the figs in as short a time as possible and to stop the growth of any of these insects getting inside of the fruit. And think about that analogy as Jesus is walking by. Jesus used a lot of analogies about agriculture in his parables. So he's aware of the fig tree, he's aware of the fruit, and as he looks up and he goes, grown man in a tree. Why is there a grown man in a tree? But we know that Jesus knows he was going to be there. I like to think it was maybe, that's the guy that was at Matthew's party that night. I don't know if that's true, but he did see a grown man in a tree, and he thinks about who Zacchaeus is, because we know, however he knew it, he knew who Zacchaeus was because he called him by name. And as he sees Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree, sitting next to those sycamore figs, bitter fruit that's left alone on its own will ruin. Jesus, knowing all about sycamore trees and figs, chose to pause his walk that day in order to pierce Zacchaeus's heart with his act of amazing grace so that Zacchaeus would now be not a hatred to others, but a blessing to others. 
And Jesus not only sees Zacchaeus, but he calls up to him. He stops what he's doing. He doesn't say, oh, that's one of those tax collectors. I need to talk to him, but I'm not going to do it right now because it it won't bring some good uh, press to my ministry. He doesn't care. He stops, points out to Zacchaeus, and not only says his name, but says, I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house, not I'm going to come by and stand outside because I'm not coming in. No, I must stay at your house. Doesn't Jesus know who and what Zacchaeus is? Doesn't Jesus know that this is risky to his ministry and his reputation? And of course, the answer is yes to both of those. Jesus does not care. He tunes out the thoughts of the crowd and the feelings of the crowd in order to do what he was called to do, and that's to seek and save this lost man. And there's no doubt that Jesus and Zacchaeus hear the crowd saying, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Why would he do that? You don't do that, Jesus. He's a traitor. Don't you understand that? He's an enemy of Israel. You don't associate with tax collectors, Jesus. And you especially don't go to their house and stay. You don't do that. Jesus does, doesn't he? Jesus did that. And Jesus does that. So my question in this story is, when does Zacchaeus make this statement of change that he's about to enter into? I'm trying to figure this out from the passage, and I've never really quite got that. It says in verse 8, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody, see, he's still in denial a little bit, out of anything I will pay back four times the amount. So as soon as he got down From the tree, did he say that? Or did he say that after he had gone to his house and maybe him and Jesus had, you know, uh, had a meal together and talked about life for several hours? And then after all of that, he finally says this. I'm not really sure. And I don't really know that it matters because we know that he did make a change. What seems to matter most here is the transformation that Zacchaeus has after meeting Jesus face to face. And he's willing to go beyond what the Jewish law said to make amends for his cheating. He is talking about giving half of his possessions to the poor. That's more than is required by the law of Moses. He's Jewish. He knows the law of Moses. He's been taught since a boy. But he says, I'm going to go above that. And the whole thing about four times the amount, that was for thieves. And he considers himself a thief. And he's willing to pay back that four, uh, four times amount. So he's going beyond and one half to the poor, and pay back four times what he has stolen. His mind and his heart have been changed to the point he was taking concrete action. I'm not just going to have this feeling of guilt. I'm not just going to have this feeling that something ought to be done. Somebody ought to do something. I can't do anything about it. It's too late. He goes, no, I can start right now and change my ways. And notice what Jesus says in response to Zacchaeus' statement, which tells us he's sincere. Today... Salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, again, this famous statement, came to seek and save what was lost. So I got a question for us. Did salvation come to Zacchaeus that day because of his change of heart and actions? Did it come because of what he did? Okay, I'm going to give all my stuff away. I'm going to give half of all my stuff away and I'm going to pay back four times the amount. Because in that case, it would seem like Zacchaeus saved himself By his good works. Do you see where I'm going with that? But salvation had come to Zacchaeus' house in the form of Jesus. Salvation has come to this house today. Jesus was coming to his house. Jesus is the salvation. Because why? Jesus said and reminded all the people 
Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Why would Jesus say that? Because the crowd had says, Zacchaeus, you are not worthy. Zacchaeus, the crowd said, you are beyond saving. You are not worthy and you will never change. You will always be a thief and a cheat. And the crowd had said, Zacchaeus, you are not one of us. And Jesus said, none of that's true. This man is one of you. He is not beyond change. He is worthy of that salvation. And so I want us to understand that Jesus had offered grace and salvation to Zacchaeus before he made any of those promises. Do y'all see that? Before he made any of those promises, Jesus said, you're worthy of the grace. And that's what compelled him to do what he did. He was saved through grace by Jesus. And because of that, I'm going to live differently. I can't ever be the same because of that. And because of that, Zacchaeus was willing to change and be transformed. And Paul would say later, therefore, and we're going to read this in our communion text today, if anyone is in Christ, they are what? A new creation. The old is what? It's gone. And the new has come. And that had certainly happened in his life. So this morning, we need to look at our lives. I mean, if we can't just look at that story and go, oh, we little man, that's great. It has something to do with us. Are we willing to set aside our pride and our self-reliance to see Jesus? Because this man was a very self-reliant, successful man in his life. But he had to put all that aside to see Jesus. And what do we need to repent of actively and remove or make amends for in our lives. Not just feel guilty about it, not just feel bad about it, but say, no, I'm going to do something concretely about that. And what for us, what for me and you is the run and climb a tree thing that we need to do? I don't mean literally you need to run and climb a tree. Well, whatever that might be, what is the equivalent for me that I go, I don't care if I'm humiliated, I don't care if I'm ridiculed to see and experience the way, the life, and the truth of Jesus, I'm willing to do that because I need a change in my life. And are we willing to recognize that Jesus calls our enemies to experience the same salvation that he offers to us? Nobody is beyond the grace of Jesus. And are we willing to let Jesus inside of our homes, in our hearts, to transform us?